Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm Ambassador John Simon, a senior advisor here at CSIS. I will be the guest host for Dan's podcast this week to interview him about his new book, The American Imperative, Claiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. In his new book, Dan makes the case for renewed American engagement in the developing world for our own prosperity and security, but also because foreign assistance and other forms of soft power are largely where this competition is going to play out. The developing world has changed over the last several decades. It is richer, freer, and has a lot more agency. Russia and China can fill vacuums, digital vacuums, trade vacuums, vaccine vacuums, and infrastructure vacuums. The United States and our allies must offer a positive agenda that meets the needs and aspirations of partner countries. If this is not done, these countries will turn to Russia and China. The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, is the first book in decades to look at our non-military power through the lens of great power competition. It calls for supporting broad-based economic growth, supporting good governance and anti-corruption, long-term training, differentiating our approaches in middle-income countries and fragile states, and stronger U.S. leadership in the multilateral system. The book closes with a call for major fixes to the current system of soft power. The way we are organized, the plumbing issues, how we dole out monies, and personality issues. We need a 20-year strategy for our soft power that works for Republicans and Democrats and will respond to the challenges of today. To begin, before we dive into the book, I'd like to ask Dan how he ended up at CSIS and what was his career trajectory before joining. Dan? Thanks, John. It's really awesome to see you. This is really great. I'm really grateful to you. I've known you for 25 years. You're the reason I went to the Kennedy School of Government because you were in the brochure in 1996. And I think then... Vice Dean Joe McCarthy had gone out of his way to try and recruit Republicans. You're the token Republican in the Kennedy School brochure. And I saw that and I was like, well, if he can do this, then it's safe for me to go to Harvard. And then and I called you before I applied. I'm like, John, are you sure that I can go? And I called you from overseas. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. And then when I got to Harvard, you were my first phone call. And I said, I've got to do some long-term project and yes, yeah, so I know what that is. I don't have one, but my seatmate, my office mate has one. And then that led to a whole bunch of other things, including ultimately meeting Andrew Natsio. So, you know, in many ways, you're a very consequential person in my life, even if it doesn't seem like it, but through a series of connections, you helped me figure out where to go to grad school, where I met Sonia, Mrs. Rundy, and I met Andrew Natsios, uh, my mentor and friend and someone who you consider a mentor and friend as well. So... You were, you were more consequential than you, you realized, and it was, a, it was a really consequential thing that you agreed to say yes to be, on the, be the token Republican. So thanks for doing that. I did not realize how consequential I was in your life, Dad. That has been reassessing my life a little bit. But, but, but I do remember <laughs> one thing I told you, because you asked me, you know, what's it like for Republicans in terms of uh, education at the Kennedy School? And what I said was, is actually we get a much better education than anyone else here because we're always challenged. And we can't be lazy in our thinking the way that, you know, someone who's who's thinking with the vast majority of students there could be. And I actually think it's kind of something that we've, you know, operated in the world of development as we have, 
it's a skill that I think has been helped us both because, you know, also in the world of uh, foreign aid and development, you often find yourself when you're advocating ideas from the right to be in the minority and having to convince people that these are ideas worth considering. I've often said this, that being in the foreign policy and development establishment, I'm in but not of, right? I think, you you know, and so that it's, it's, um, it requires a lot of additional effort as a result. And so I think it's been a, uh, anyways, you've been a really great partner and friend for a long time. So I'm really grateful you agreed to do this. And I couldn't think of a better person to have this conversation with. Just like you, you know, I met Andrew Natsios and that kind of like, and he wasn't the person you met originally. You met, I think, several other people that got you to Charlie Baker and then to Andrew. And I, through kind of through you and somebody else, got to Andrew Natsios. And then Andrew became head of USAID at the beginning of the Bush administration in May of 2001. And you joined sometime in 01, I think, or early 02. And then I joined in June of 02. And so both of us have had a career in international affairs through with the assistance of Andrew, because we both worked for him or had done, I had done research for him at Harvard. So it was a big deal. So as I said, I'm uh, really, you know, I'm really happy we're doing this. So look, I showed up at AID in June of 02. I met Sonia at Harvard and she said, I got to go back to Argentina. And I spoke Spanish because I'd lived in Spain for a while. And I said, that's okay. I've lived overseas. I speak Spanish. I'll go do that with you. And, um, so figure out if you're Miss Wright and if I'm Mr. Wright. And so we did that and it turned out it worked. And we got married down in Argentina. And I had an interesting career. I worked for Citibank and I worked for another bank down there uh, and had a really, you know, kind of a 50-yard experience on what an emerging market economy, both through the political economy of it. And it was a real education, some of it hard, but uh, a real education. And then when I got to AID, I joined the multi-stakeholder partnership initiative that had been championed by career foreign service officers at AID that Andrew Natsios had agreed to very strongly and vigorously support. And then between Andrew Natsios and the foreign service officers, they won the support of then Secretary of State Colin Powell. And he referenced it in some of his initial testimony before the Congress on development. And so then I, because I had a private sector background and lived overseas, they said, why don't you be, join the, the team pulling this change management initiative together called the, the Global Development Alliance. So it was uh, really great. And then I, so I was at aid for five years. For those and who then, don't know, the Global Development Alliance is an initiative that really encapsulates a lot of the approaches that are now being discussed at USAID in terms of leveraging the private sector. So if you look at USAID today, almost everything they do has built into it thoughts about how we engage with the private sector. And that all really began. That was not the case 20 years ago when uh, you started the Global Development Alliance. That all really be, really began with the, with the GDA. Yeah, thanks, John. I think that's right. And I think that at the time it was not seen as sort of a normal thing, if I can put it that way. It was seen as a little bit uncomfortable. 20 years later, it's seen as working across sectors. Now, AID had done that sort of work before the launch of it in 2001. There had been multi-stakeholder partnerships for decades before, 
But I think it became more of a regular thing and sort of one of the lenses by which we looked at solving problems, big giant problems and kind of on a, in a systemic way. And so I think, and sort of the theory of change and development was somewhat, was, was impacted by this. So that it was a really, a, and I had a real education in how foreign policy worked, how development fit into foreign policy, how it fit into national security. I had some really wonderful people who I learned from. Um, I think of, of course, Holly Wise, who was my first boss at AID. People like Kurt Reinsma, who was a senior foreign service officer, you know, people who, you know, had spent decades living overseas, largely in Africa. I went to Africa for the first time at AID. You know, it was, so anyways, it was a particularly interesting thing. I think that after five years when Andrew left, it was less interesting. And I very much liked serving in the Bush administration, but it wasn't clear to me that, and I liked John McCain very, very much, but I didn't think John McCain was going to win. And so and I, I needed to find something else to do. So I got a role at the World Bank Group. And so I spent four years at the World Bank. I thought it was super interesting. I had a laissez-passe, which is a, you know, a UN passport, and learned about why the World Bank's important, why multilateral institutions are important. And I worked specifically for the development finance arm of the World Bank Group, the International Finance Corporation. And uh, I had worked on Wall Street before after college. And then I'd worked for an emerging markets commercial bank in Argentina. So I had, and I'd worked for an aid agency. So I had a lot of, you know, I, it was a, it was an important additional sort of rounding out for me about sort of how I looked at the world and the importance of multilaterals and development finance and the role of the private sector and all this. So it was a real education. So by the time I showed up at CSIS 12 years ago, I lived, worked in the private sector, I'd worked in government, I'd worked at a multilateral, I'd worked somewhat in, briefly in corporate philanthropy in Argentina, so, and I'd served on a number of nonprofit boards, and I'd, I'd gone to the Kennedy School. So I, you know, I, I came to CSIS to look at really American soft power from sort of an internationalist perspective, but a, kind of a center-right center, center right worldview. It's been a great deal. It's been a good arrangement. I've been very grateful to be here. I've, I've never taken it for granted. I try to earn my spot here every day. And um, it's, been a, it's been the right platform and the right place for me to do the work I want to do on this. And I think the book that we're going to be talking about, uh, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, that comes out January the 17th is sort of a distillation of certainly 20 years in Washington, but also a lot of my work at CSIS and also also some of my experience outside of that as well. So it's been great. It's been a, it's been a really interesting journey. It sure as heck hasn't been boring, that's for sure. And certainly it's been a moment in time where soft power has become increasingly important. When we talk about soft power, what are you what are you really referring to there? Yeah, thanks. I think I'm a little vague about it in the book and a little vague about it in the title, because, and I kind of dodged that a little bit. But I would say it's not just development. I'm interested in how we use certain kinds of diplomacy, such as how we operate in the multilateral system. Some of it is about how we are strategically investing in getting young people to come to the United States to study here in the U.S. I also think some of it's about using development finance instruments, which isn't really technically kind of foreign aid, but it's sort of a derivative of foreign aid and it's kind of foreign aid's first or second cousin. Some of it's about how we communicate with the world, how we partner with others. And 
some of its economics or some of it's around trade and, and, and pub, so trade and public diplomacy. I don't cover all of this in the book, but what I would think about is think of it as everything that's not the intelligence community, everything that's not howitzers and night vision goggles and Blackhawk helicopters and nuclear weapons. I'm interested in all the non the non-military and intelligence instruments of our power. Some of it is directly controlled by the American government. Oftentimes, it's civil society or the private sector or, or our innovation. Some of it's our energy, our capacity to generate and power the world. Some of it is our higher education institutions. I'm interested in sort of all our non-military assets of our power because I think that great power competition, which is the kind of the paradigm in which I think we've been looking at the world for the last five years, starting with the, the Trump administration's national security strategy, and I think ratified largely by the recent Biden administration national security strategy is, if we're in an era of not great power competition, most of it is not going to be played out using military power. It's going to be played out using other forms of our power. You know, and we can talk about different versions of this. And so I'm interested when I use soft power, I think of it as like, think of our non military oftentimes that's encapsulated in Washington speak by the 150 account as opposed to the 050 account, but I don't think it fully captures it either. So it's sort of development plus a bunch of other stuff is how I think about our soft power. I know, what do you think about that, John? Is that, a, is that an okay definition? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think the soft power term, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, was first brought to bear by the old dean of the Kennedy School, Joseph Nye. When, you know, people originally thought about soft power, uh, they thought about it in the terms of the non-military aspects of government, things like diplomacy and development, aid, aid programs. I think what you've described is a much broader definition that incorporates the private sector, incorporates engagement with the multilateral institutions. I mean, I think, you know, one thing I know you've, spent a lot of time is focusing on all these relatively unknown international agencies that set the rules of the road around critical industries such as the internet or intellectual property or, or things of that nature. I really got religion about that, John, if I may. I had somebody smart come to me. I, I think we got our asses kicked. I think that's the technical term with an election where China put forward a very viable candidate uh, to run something called the FAO, which sets, as you were using the term, sets the rules of the road for food and agriculture standards. And that's really important for global trade. And their candidate won 110 votes or something like this. And our candidate won 10. And it was a shaming, shocking experience for us. So I think that was such a wake-up call because for the Trump administration that they called me, senior people said, we need your help with something called WIPO. And John, you probably knew what WIPO was, but I had no idea what the heck WIPO was. Did you know what WIPO was? Until I saw it in your article, I do not think I did at all. But that was right. an intellectual property organization, which of course, you know, what's, what could be more valuable in, in an innovation economy than intellectual property? Right. But I had no idea what the heck it was. And so we spent a lot of time. I first said, is there a WIPO for dummies? And there was no WIPO for dummies. And then so we put together a, my, a colleague and I spent a week putting together a WIPO for dummies. We convened two meetings with the White House and U.S. diplomats and the private sector saying, OK, here there's 10 candidates. This is how the game's going to be played, because each of these has a different kind of an election. And we're going to have to, you know, pick somebody 
because the, the Chinese Communist Party has put forward a very, very strong, excellent candidate. And so we needed to, you know, come up with somebody. And so we hadn't really sort of had to do that sort of thing in a long time. I think as power has shifted, the United States has the ability to continue to compete and win in the multilateral space. But we can't take our sort of managing the multilateral system for granted. And it's a really important thing. It's a force multiplier for all sorts of other things we want to do, whether it's in the security realm or standards or money for development or the global rules of the road, as you were saying, these are really important institutions. I mean, you were ambassador at the end of the Bush administration, the African Union. You were, we, I, I, don't, I think, yes, we have observer status. That's a really important organization that many people don't in the Washington pay that much attention to, but is a collective action vehicle in Africa that has huge moral authority, right? I mean, we, you know, so how, who we send and how we think about it and how we work with these institutions really does matter. We can't just kind of blow it off and say, let's just stop funding these things or let's get out of them because it's going to be one world government. I think that's not, well, A, that's not going to happen, but B, we need to be very clever about it because if we leave, China will fill the void in these places. Do you agree with that? So first, to your first point, I absolutely agree and, and think that these these organizations, whether they're an obscure UN agency like WIPO or a very fundamental uh, continental organization like the African Union or in this hemisphere, the Organization of American States, you know, they're force multipliers for our foreign policy. When we work with those organizations, we are able to leverage a lot more uh, influence than what we can do on our own. And in fact, in many cases, there are things that if they come out of American mouths, will be grating on a lot of folks, where if they come out of the mouths of the AU or the mouths of the OAS, you know, are going to be things that people are going to be willing to talk about and accept. And so on the first point you made, uh, uh, I, I absolutely believe uh, we've been late to the party in terms of leverage. Well, actually, I shouldn't say we've been late to the party. We were the ones who created the international architecture after World War II. And then we left it to atrophy and wither for a period of time. And we've been late to the party to, to, to leveraging the, the, these ins, ins, institutions in the, in the last few decades. And I think writing that is critical. But you bring up another point where we tend to have a little less agreement, which is on China. And the point that we, that, and it's a big part of your book, which is how do we use our soft power to counter China? And for years and years, I always used to argue that if we put China in the, in, in the center of what we do, we may miss the forest for the trees because a lot of our partners don't want to be caught in the middle of a uh, match, whether it's a shooting match or a non-shooting match between uh, us and China. But I think in the last few years, you know, a lot of what you've said for years and years has proven not to be true, that China has actually been a much more malign influence than some of us might have hoped in the international sphere. How do you see China uh, in, in today's world of soft power competition, today's world of global competition, and particularly with regard to soft power? So I think that the, the, you know, 20 years ago, when you and I moved to, you know, moved to Washington and joined AID, I don't think anybody thought of the Chinese Communist Party as an organization that was a serious global competitor to the United States. We were operating under the thesis of then Deputy Secretary of State Robert Selleck, who did a blurb for my book, by the way, kindly, that I think most people agreed with, everybody agreed with, which was we want to incorporate the Chinese Communist Party and mainland China into the global system as a responsible stakeholder. So we 
kind of fell all over ourselves to say, well, you know, as part of this thesis to say, like, we'll have you join the Inter-American Development Bank. We'll support you running the International Telecommunications Union role. We'll support you in running the air, the air traffic control ICAO, which sort of sets the rules of role for the air traffic control system. We'll, you know, Hong Kong's really technically different, even if they didn't see it that way. So we'll support uh, a Hong Konger to run the World Health Organization. And in a number of these instances, they went out of their way to kick out Taiwan from the WHO, to kick out Taiwan from the air traffic control rules of the road. And they started doing things that kind of surprised us. And so I think we, we realized in the case of the World Intellectual Property Organization that they had gone out and gotten a personal trainer and had been working out for 10 years and had started pulling together cadres of diplomats, very able diplomats who spoke English and potentially French. They invested a lot in their people. They invested a lot in these multilateral organizations and they took it seriously. They opened up dozens more diplomatic representations and they started playing and competing to win in the multilateral system. And I think we didn't really wake up to that until we lost. We got our butts kicked in this FAO election where I think, you know, I think, I think especially for Republicans, I think we're of kind of two schools of thought about multilateralism. We're like, okay, let's just get out of this stuff. It's, it's all balone, phony baloney and it's useless. And, you know, they don't pay their parking tickets in New York or they're going to, you know, they're going to take our guns away or, you know, they're going to take, they're going to, they're going to muck around in our sovereignty and we're, we don't, we don't want to get a permission slip and we got to defend ourselves or this kind of a thing. And some of that, I understand where that comes from. And I'm somewhat, I'm gently sympathetic to, I'm, I'm a friendly sympathizer in some ways to some of that. On the other hand, though, it's not realistic. It's not 1995 anymore where we would go around saying, we're going to cut off your funding and we're not going to, you do this and you do that. It doesn't really work that way. We have to be a little bit more, we have to work in partnership with others. We have to send excellent diplomats. We have to pay our bills. We don't have to put up with every baloney thing they do, but we ought to do our level best to kind of play in the system because to the extent we say we're going to opt out, China and Russia will say that's fine. To the extent we say we're not going to pay our bills, there will come a day where China or Russia will pay our dues for us and make us look like chumps. So I think we, they are absolutely able to fill a space in the international system that we leave behind. The other thing, after we did a big study on this, and it had a big influence on me, that there's about 200 of these multilateral organizations, of which we kind of diplomatically recognize about 130, 140. I don't think I could name all of them. But if they want to run the Internationally Tiddlywinks Association or the International Checkers Association, if the Chinese Communist Party wants to run those, I'm fine with that. I sure as hell don't want them running the IMF or the World Bank or becoming Secretary General of the United Nations. So there's certain things what I would characterize as, let's call it the commanding heights of the multilateral system, that I don't want them running. And I don't think we're going to want them running because they'll change the rules. They'll get in there and change the DNA of these multilateral institutions. As you said, John, we help design these things. Large, whether we like it or not, most or all these institutions have American DNA. They operate in English. They often use American or British law. They operate in dollars. Most of these elites have studied in the United States. 
getting a master's or PhD or a law degree. We want that to continue. We want these folks to have a default, even if they're kind of sometimes feel a little bit vaguely anti-American. They're not. They're, you know, they have their thumb on the scale most of the time as kind of free, most of the time on kind of market, you know, free market, you know, democracies. They're sort of market, demo they have a market democracy bias. They have a gentle democracy and human right, Western form of human rights bias. We should see them as such. There are a handful where there's going to be, there's some pain points in the multilateral system, especially for Republicans. We need to work around those and deal with those. Doesn't mean we should excuse them. But if we're not active in these institutions, China can fill the void. It's very different than 20 years ago. We can't just say we're taking our bat and ball and going home. Now, when you think about sort of the, the competition between us and China going forward, do you feel the way the Biden administration seems to feel that there's a arena where we can compete with China and then another arena where we can collaborate? Or is more like it was with the Cold War? Do we see sort of every arena as an arena where we're going to be going head to head with them? I sadly think we're moving more and more towards the latter. I think we've spent a lot of time trying to work with them on, I think we should leave the door open in a number of areas. So for example, there's several hundred thousand Chinese young people that come to the United States every year to study. I think we should, within reason, continue to, to do that as long as they're not policing other young people from China and infringing on their human rights and freedom, which is a real issue, as long as they're not stealing intellectual property and saying, oh, I'm doing some research, and they're actually you know, putting it in some suitcase and flying it back to Beijing, which has also been a thing. So I'm certainly much more enthusiastic about you know, students from, from mainland China coming and studying art history than I am, say, nuclear physics or like some super-duper advanced medical thing having to do with cancer or, or you know, jet propulsion or something. So I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but I think you get the idea. So I think we need to have ways of keeping doors open. Our problem ultimately is not with the Chinese people. Our problem is with an, a very bad regime. The Chinese Communist Party is a bad regime. They do bad things. And we just need to have our eyes much more open about it. I think the Biden administration is a little too naive, and I worry that they're going to trade because they really care about the issue of climate, that they might make some bad trade on some kind of fake deal on climate that I don't actually believe they're actually going to do. Like last time I checked, mainland China is like the largest carbon emitter, and they're still opening new coal plants. So when people tell me like, oh, they're the world's biggest leader in climate, it's not actually true, but I've had people say this, and it's kind of not a serious statement. So I think, yes, in, in, at the edges, we should do it. I think we should also be very intentional and much more aggressive about engaging independently Chinese, the Chinese people, similar to the way we did in the Cold War, so that we are reaching them with messages. Not necessarily, we're not necessarily trying to overthrow, the, I don't think we want to be overthrowing the Chinese government. But I, I, I'd rather be us than them. I think they've got a, a government that, you know, they've got a bunch of problems, one of which is their demography is terrible because of their horrible one-child policy, which they're now reaping the whirlwind on. And now they don't have enough, they're not going to have enough people. There's a really interesting book called, um, I think it's called Invisible China by two Stanford uh, labor economists talking about that they may be stuck in the middle income trap because they don't have enough workers to kind of generate productivity gains that they're going to need to get to out of the middle income trap. So my hope is that we don't get into a war with them. And if we just don't get into a war with them for 20 years, they're going to have the, the demographic energy of Portugal. 
And, you know, we'll, you know, they'll be part of the furniture of the global system. But I think over time we can, you know, we can kind of manage it. But I think we need to confront, if I can put it, maybe the word is a little strong, but I think we need to respond to them. We need to have a strategy on a number of different non-military fronts as part of this strategy. Because I think what the reason I wrote this book is I think there's a largely a bipartisan consensus we have a problem with the Chinese Communist Party. What we haven't figured out is like, what's the consensus on quote unquote, what to do? I'd like to see my book as a contribution on helping to put forward some suggestions on things that we need to do or what we could do in the non-military realm where most of this is going to play out. And you mentioned the Cold War. You mentioned before the idea that not only China, but Russia could fill our vacuum. Yet in my mind, you know, Russia has been an economic pygmy for quite some time. And now in Ukraine, they're seem, seeming to show themselves to be a military pygmy as well, a military pygmy with uh, nuclear weapons. So not someone yeah. to, be, to be discounted or, or, or ignored. But do you see what do you see as the strategy vis-a-vis Russia in, in this world of great power competition? And are they wow. really a great power? They have nuclear weapons. They have. So the Russians have horrible demography. The only thing they export is oil and gas, and they've got some minerals, and they they were a big weapons exporter. I've been to Moscow several times. I don't know if you've been there. It's not a place that I find particularly attractive. Uh, I do think that we also don't have a problem with the Russian people. We've got a problem with Vladimir Putin and his, his circle. We need to find ways to engage Russia. We need to engage Russian people uh, because we're going to work towards the day when someday there's not a Vladimir Putin. And so I think we need to find ways to engage Russian people, even, even in this environment where it's really more difficult because of sanctions and because there's understandably an enormous amount of anger and distrust because of what the Russians have done in Ukraine. This illegal invasion of Ukraine is just so outrageous. So I think in the case of Russia, I would say several things. One is a lot of countries have hid behind the fact that they've been a big weapons exporter saying, oh, well, we voted the wrong way in the United Nations on Ukraine because we got our weapons from Russia because they've been such a great weapons supplier. To your point, I think the, you know, the, the huge tragedy of Ukraine, I'm not going to call them silver linings, but or maybe perhaps opportunities because I think that the, the Ukraine war should never have happened. And it's just a, one of the greatest outrages of, that I've ever lived, uh, lived through. But I would say that um, countries such as India or others who've been like, well, I buy my weapons from them. So really, I can't you can't expect me to vote my, the, the right way, which was to condemn them in the United Nations. Now that they've seen that the weapons of Russia stink, there's an opportunity for us to push all these people who buy Russian weapon systems. So you really want to keep buying those crap weapon systems? Don't you want to? I actually think that is a form of diplomacy and almost a form of soft power is the I, I know it seems ironic, but like acquiring weapon systems and the training that go with it is a, an important form of influence. Um, and you know that. And, and I think but I think that I think the other thing is the best outcome for the, the Ukraine war is a Ukraine that is 10 years from now fully embedded in the Euro-Atlantic community, a member of the OECD, a member of the European Union, and perhaps a member of NATO where it's got the GNP per capita of Poland, the defense capacities of an Israel, the ICT sector of Estonia, 
the ag capacities of Canada and the manufacturing capacities of Germany. That should be the goal we should be working towards. Uh, we've been running at CSIS a big commission on Ukraine reconstruction. And so part of it is making sure that when this is over, that Ukraine joins the West, fully joins the West as it goes through this violent, angry divorce from Russia after 300 years. And so I think that's the most important thing we can do. But I also think as Russia has foundered in the war, it's, it's leaving vacuums. Some of it is things like it's disinformation is harder to, that people aren't buying their crap on disinformation stuff. Some countries have cut off RT, which is sort of the state-sponsored propaganda arm of the Russian regime. But I think we need to find specific ways of reaching Russian people, young people, and prepare for a day. Putin's 70, and maybe he's sick. I, I don't wish him well. So I hope that there will come a day when we, we should hope and believe that the democracy is possible in Russia and democracy is possible in mainland China. We should work toward those goals and that these countries can be at peace with their neighbors and not operate in ways where they're seeking to, let me put it, overthrow the, the, the current system, which they've both been beneficiaries of. One thing about reaching the Russian people, it's a little easier as Putin chases the best and the brightest out of the country. We can start working with, with, with this massive diaspora he's creating, which I think is, again, another form of soft power. And certainly, you know, working with diasporans, whether they're from uh, Latin America or Africa or, or other parts, is another element of soft power. And, you know, we used to talk a lot about the economic impact of remittances, which I think is significant as well. Um, from, from your perspective, do you see that as an area where, where we have a unique advantage since so many people, when they leave a country, their ultimate destination is often, often the United States with a Republican Party that is becoming more and more hostile to immigrants? I think I would say the following thing. I'd say most Republicans are okay with people coming through the door following the rules. And so I think that if you add, I think, I think there's something like a million people come through the United States legally every year. I also think most Republicans are fine with, I believe it's a million or so people, maybe it's a half a million people come to the United States every year to study, to study in our institutions of higher education. Maybe it's more, I think it's higher than that. Don't know only the exact number. The issue has been when people have come illegally or in an unregular way, many people, you know, there's a whole, there's 10 different reasons why that that's a problem. I don't think there's been kind of, let me call it no objection to the issue of having many people study as long as they're not violating the human rights of other foreign students or they're not stealing intellectual property. These are both examples of things that have happened with some Chinese, a very small number of Chinese students, but enough to kind of, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. So I think we absolutely ought to be engaging with the Chinese diaspora. We ought to be engaging with the Russian diaspora. I think how we treat all people in the United States matters in this conflict. So if there is, if there are examples of anti-Asian discrimination as rose because of what happened during COVID, I think that's a problem for us. During the Cold War, how we treated African-Americans was used heavily against us uh, during the Cold War by the Soviet Union. And then I believe other countries as well saying that we mistreated. We didn't treat everybody in our country the way they all ought to be treated. So how we treat all people in the United States matters and how we're viewed in the world. And we are held to a higher standard. So it's really important that we 
are seen as uh, treating all people well in, in ways. So I think we have to think about that and we have to be at least cognizant of that as we make decisions about, even including decisions about how we handle migration issues that are sensitive. And we have every right to protect our border and have border security, but we need to do so in ways that are, you know, that we need to just be aware that how, how we do that is being viewed by the world and, and people, our adversaries can use it. I will also say, though, that the fact that there's so many people banging down the door to come to the U.S. says we're still we've still got our mojo. I worry more, John, if people are not coming to U.S. and are leaving. Yeah, you read about a couple, you know, several thousand Americans every year renouncing their passport. If we lose five million Americans or some mass exodus of 20 million Americans leave the country, then we know we got a problem, especially if sort of our best and our brightest. So. As long as we want, I think one of our secret weapons is managed and legal migration and managed and legal higher education studies are some of the things that are important to us. We've, we're below replacement levels in terms of our population. So I do think most Americans are comfortable with some levels of some level of legal migration. And I think it replenishes the country and has all sorts of benefits for us. So, and I think we should, as part of that, I think we had a moral obligation in Afghanistan to take people. I think we've taken as many, we've taken a significant number, and I think that was the right thing to do. We had a moral obligation there. And I think in the case of Ukraine, we ought to go out of our way to take a significant number of Ukrainians to, to signal our, our willingness to do that as well. I think there are very few instances where we, where when we put ourselves out to help people in distress, that that has been anything other than a big positive to us. I think your point about how we treat people within our country is something that will, will be viewed uh, externally and be, a, be something that people will look at and say, we'll look at how we treat people within the United States as a way of who we are and what we are. I think is absolutely right. I actually think this re re most recent World Cup had some great examples in that regard. I mean, I know in the Rundy household, you all are celebrating Argentina's win. Congratulations on that. But I think the American team displayed not just a lot of grit on the field, but when an American athlete was asked, you know, as an African-American, how did he feel representing a country that discriminated against African-Americans? He gave a wonderful response that, to paraphrase, it was, look, as a soccer player, I travel around the world and I see that there's discrimination around the world. What I can say about our country is we're trying to address this issue and do, and every day we're getting better. And when you look at a soccer team that includes folks or a football team, probably more appropriate to say, that includes folks from all different types of backgrounds, including you know, the son of the of the president of another country. Uh, I think that tells you that we're a country that welcomes all sorts of people. And that's, you know, what we do in the cultural and athletic sphere is also a very big part of soft power. Yeah, I agree. So, John, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and, and I've been really, I was really proud to write this book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, at, which comes out January the 17th, was because I wanted to spark a new conversation about how we engage in the world. I think we've had a variety of things, whether it was the 2008 financial crisis, some of it was, let's call it, exhaustion from Iraq and Afghanistan. There's been an increased temptation to just say, well, I don't want to engage in the world. I just think we're too interdependent. If you look at you know what happened with covid you know, the world is going to come out and reach out and touch us regardless of how we feel about it. And so I feel like we need to be active in the world to shape, to shape it, to protect ourselves, but also to take advantage of opportunities. Also, because we're not going to like it if 
if the Chinese Communist Party ends up setting the rules of the global road, we're, we're not going to like it at all. It would be a really, really bad outcome. They have the capacity to do that. We can stop it, but we have to get, get our act together. I don't think it's just us who won't like it. I think the vast majority of the people in, in, in the world won't like it. They're looking to us to be to, to help marshal their efforts to chart a better path forward. And we, you know, we need to step up to that up to that both opportunity and that responsibility. We're the only country that can do it. Either it's us or it's China. So the world can pick. They can complain about us, but it's if it ain't us, it's gonna be the Chinese Communist Party. So the world has to pick. Do they want to work with us or not? Do we want to work with the world is also another question. So I think I do think when push comes to shove, though, if we say to people, are you cool with a world led by the Chinese Communist Party, even some of the most uh, international skeptics in Washington, most of them will say, I don't want a world led by the Chinese Communist Party. I've not yet found anybody that has said in Washington, even the most skeptical, I'm cool with a world led by the Chinese Communist Party. I've not met anybody like that. So I think that opens up a conversation and say, okay, well, are you willing to do X or Y? And in the breach, what I saw in the Trump administration was the winning argument was either we do this or China's going to win this. And they'd say, I, I don't want that. And then they would do something, they would take an action that one might describe as sort of internationalist as a response to that specifically to like, are you, are you cool with China doing X or doing Y? And they would say, no, I don't want it. You propose a lot of fixes to our current soft power system. Uh, what are the ones that you think are most important as we as we try and offer this this alternative to both Americans and how do we how do we overcome the skepticism that I think is not just in Washington but is also largely out in their country and to the world world at large? So I would like our leadership to continue to make the case for sustained international engagement. I think there's been less there's been less energy and enthusiasm about, especially in the our, our Republican Party for a long time. I think the gateway drug to do that is to talk about either we're going to either we're going to lead the world or China is. And I think that that I think is kind of opens the conversation. I don't want to demonize mainland China. As I said earlier, our problem isn't with the Chinese people. It's our problems with the Chinese Communist Party. So when I say the word China, I'm specifically speaking about the Chinese Communist Party and the, the awful regime that currently leads that wonderful country. So I think that. Um, that's one thing. I think the second is, I, I frankly think we've not had a full top to bottom review of how we allocate our people time and money for a lot of our soft power, meaning specifically a lot of our foreign aid in particular. I think it's due, we're way overdue to do this. I think we've had, a, we've had some a small attempts to doing that since 9-11. What we did is we added on, we've added different things. I mean, I think PEPFAR, uh, the president's emergency program for you know AIDS response was one example of sort of an add-on that we did. The MCC, was, these were all many of the the biggest initiatives in global development happened in the Bush administration. You could argue, I think that's true, or the Trump administration with the reauthorization of the Exim Bank or the uh, the Build Act. I mean, if you say, okay, what? What major initiatives in the Obama and Biden administrations today? The only one I can point to is Power Africa. Of that's been that's kind of lasted. So I think we need a sustain a significant, responsible, top to bottom review of our. I'd like to see a review of the Foreign Assistance Act, which was you know hasn't really been fiddled with in any serious way since 1961. There was a partial attempt in 1985. 
I think we ought to be looking at a series, if, if, if we want to fix some of the procurement issues that oftentimes are discussed in Washington, uh, we ought to look at the, the, the Federal Acquisitions Act itself, what's called the FAR, as opposed to saying, you know, some of the kind of the workarounds that we're seeing the Biden administration do. So they haven't been willing to, to take that on. So I think someone's going to have to do this. It probably may end up ending up with a Republican administration to do this. I think we need to continue to fight for free market economic growth and improving and supporting good governance. Those are things I think we can largely get a consensus about in the Republican and Democratic Party on. I thought it was a terrible mistake that the World Bank Group got rid of the doing business indicators, something supported by the Bush administration. I think it was the most impactful thing in the last 15 years of the World Bank Group. And I think it was a pity that the Biden administration didn't fight for it more. I think we're waking up and smelling the coffee in the multilateral space. I think you're going to see both Republican and Democratic administrations be much more attuned and switched on on the issue of sort of multilateral leadership. I think that's good. So I'm happy about that. I think we could be much more intentional and strategic about how we use higher, higher education and international education, long-term training. We need to be much more strategic about that. Uh, we could do more on that front. And I think we ought to be thinking more strategically about how we think about energy, including U.S. domestic energy, as a form of our power. I think we want to return to some sort of global energy dominance and things like gas and oil. I don't talk much about that in the book as much, but I think we need to, we need to make sure that we're, we lead the world in certain things, food and energy and tech and higher education or some of them. So anyways. Well, that's a pretty, pretty long list. Uh, I really think your book, you, you make the point that we, it is really now time to wake up. I think your book is a, is a big alarm, alarm clock telling us that not only uh, do we have to address these issues, but we have ways to do it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful read. It's great to talk to you about this, Dan, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks a lot. I'm really proud to have written the book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. It comes out January the 17th. You can buy it uh, at fine retail stores. You'll be able to buy it online as well. So thanks for doing this today, John. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 